Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Recoveries podcast with Concussion Talk. We appreciate Nick having us back on today. I know it's been a little while. We've been a little MIA, so I apologize for the absence that we've had this year. But we are back and we are talking about POTS. And we are also going to do a little bit of an update from our Dysautonomia podcast uh, about a year and a half ago. So my name is Lauren Zayax. I'm a physical therapist and an athletic trainer. I work in Park City, Utah for a hospital network. And I'm so excited to have my dear friend and colleague with me today. So Christina Hansen is here. Hi, Christina. Hi, thank you so much to both you and Nick for having me. This is such a cool opportunity. I've listened to you guys a lot, so it's fun to be on the actually talking side of things. (laughs) Well, you are always welcome. Uh, Christina and I have been on a little journey for the last 18 months, really digging into this world of dysautonomia and then, of course, POTS, which is the main focus of this specific podcast. Um, Christina, why don't we just get into it? So uh, tell me, what even is dysautonomia for the people who haven't listened to the older podcast? So uh, dysautonomia, I mean, in general, dys and autonomia just means an abnormal regulation of the autonomic nervous system, which is all the things that happen without us thinking about it. So breathing, digestion, um, sleeping, all of those types of things. And so dysautonomia is that some part of that is not functioning properly. And to oversimplify it, if we think about um, the autonomic nervous system having two main branches, parasympathetic being that rest and digest, and I also like to add in healing, versus the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight, Um, those systems start to compete with each other and they can't figure out, am I supposed to be hot? Am I supposed to be cold? Am I supposed to go to sleep or am I waking up? Um, Am I extra thirsty? Am I full? Am I hungry? So those sorts of things where they're just in imbalance. Wow, that sounds like a lot. So, you know, what's really interesting in my own looking into dysautonomia, um, one of the articles that we recently looked at for a journal club was talking about if someone has a stroke, let's say, and they can't move their left arm, they're able to say exactly what part of the brain was involved in that injury, right? But the autonomic nervous system has all these crossovers and it's like a giant web. And so what I thought was so cool was that 
when you have an autonomic dysfunction, you can have all this overflow and this overlay of symptoms because it's a metric system, uh, a matrix system versus just this cell does this one activity. I could have a deregulation of my autonomic nervous system and it could affect my sleep and my exercise tolerance, or it could affect the way that my heart rate works and it could affect my mood regulation because of that web type of intervention. And I think that that's so fascinating that our body is built that way. And it also makes it really hard to assess, right? It makes it a little more challenging to figure out these weird, vague symptoms because people will have widespread abnormalities. Um, and speaking of that, what do you, what is the research saying about how long it takes for the average POTS, person with POTS to get diagnosed? So <laughs> there's research and then also what we heard from the POTS conference, which is it takes an average of five years to get a diagnosis of POTS and an average of seven to 10 different physicians to get to that diagnosis. And in that time, I mean, you just think about five years, how many things, if you're having a hard time managing digestion and sleep and mood regulation and exercise tolerance, like what's going to happen to your whole system by the time you can actually finally get help. So it's, yeah, it's staggering. Yeah. I mean, that's so crazy to me to think about because these people end up with all these widespread issues that compound on themselves because they become more deconditioned, their organs start to work even worse. And so by the time they get to these doctors, they get labeled with psychological problems because if you don't know what you're looking for, you might just think, well, this person is depressed or this person is, you know, they're not quite, they're not quite firing on all cylinders, right? And it's really because the medical community has failed them and has completely missed what's going on in that prior six or seven doctor's appointments where this person's undergone all this testing. Absolutely. One of my patients, um, fortunately, was able, able to advocate for herself because of her education and training and kept telling doctors, this is not anxiety. I know what anxiety feels like. This is something else. And it, it actually took her five years to get a diagnosis. And that's with her going to the emergency department, seeing different doctors, seeing different specialists. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of self-advocacy. I thought was interesting at the Dysautonomia International. Big plug for dysautonomiainternational.org. They are amazing. It's really been a patient-driven diagnosis for so long. It's been patients advocating for themselves. What I also found really interesting was I was on my Facebook memories this morning, just like helping trigger my long-term memory loss. So I try to look at that every once in a while from my brain injuries. <laughs> Um, and this morning, uh, 10 years ago, I posted that I was at, so in Boston, there's this thing called Marathon Monday and it's Patriots Day, the whole town shuts down and the big Boston Marathon comes through. And so 10 years ago today, I posted that I was at uh, Marathon Monday and I'm going to have to figure out my blood pressure issues eventually so I can run again. And I was just laughing because it was literally in the last year that I got diagnosed with POTS. So 10 years ago, I posted, can't wait to figure out what's going on with my blood pressure so I can run again. And I only just got diagnosed basically in May of last year. Um, so, so I just thought that was really ironic because we had this scheduled for today. And then I saw that memory on Facebook. But um, just a brief history of my own story with POTS. So I, as you all know, as our listeners know, I've had way too many head injuries, which has impacted me in a variety of ways. Um, and I thought that my exercise intolerance really stemmed from my big injury seven years ago. And the more and more that we learn about POTS, we're realizing that I have had this since I ran my marathon in 2009. 
and just had a steady deconditioning. And then of course, all my head injuries made it worse. Um, and so I'm in the 11 year bucket of going to doctors and probably well over a dozen of them and ended up having to self-diagnose and force my doctor to co-sign on my diagnosis after I did the test on myself. But um, it's really interesting because for people with POTS, the symptoms are so vague. And looking back now, my husband used to say things to me like, oh, well, you just can't digest your food and walk at the same time. Like, how in the world is that something that we just assumed was, you know, that's our new normal, you know? So we would go out to eat, and then we would want to walk around the city afterwards, and I would get so sick, I would end up having to sit down. Multiple times I've had to sit down on the side of the road, or we've had to go into a bar just so I could sit down and put my head down between my legs or just do some breathing exercises because I would be so lightheaded. My vision would go gray. I would get ringing in my ears. Um, my stomach would bloat out. I would be in so much pain. Or we would just go home for the night and the whole night would be over. Um, you know, we like Italian food. Heavy carb, heavy meals are really bad for people with POTS. Alcohol is really bad for people with POTS. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you go out to dinner in San Francisco and you have an Italian meal and a glass of wine and then you try to walk around afterwards. And so he would just say, well, you know, you can't do that. Why are you upset? You can't digest your food and walk around. So um, now we know exactly why that was. It was because all of my doctors missed my POTS and my body physically couldn't do two autonomic things at the same time. It couldn't regulate my heart rate and digest my food at the same time. Um, do you find that other patients will say similar things? Yes, absolutely. Or they'll tell me sometimes they'll have bladder urgency issues, or they really describe being just extra fatigued first thing in the morning. So mornings are really hard for this group of people um, which is why I also like to have them do their, some of their strengthening exercises before they get out of bed. Let's try and increase that stroke volume. Let's give them a little boost before they get out of bed. Um, 100% of people who have POTS have dizziness. So that is, which opens up a whole other discussion potentially. But yes, dizziness is absolutely a component of something that they will describe in particular when they're standing up or feeling like they're swimming um, and it's worse after exertion or just extreme fatigue after doing something that used to be fairly simple for them. What would be some of those exercises you might have someone do in the morning? So you said in the morning before they get out of bed, you might have them do some exercises. So what would be, what would be something you would have them do and why? Um, so anything that gets, I, I like things that if they're lying in bed, something that they can do fairly easily before they get out of bed. So bending their knees and lifting their hips. So like a bridge type motion or rolling onto their side and doing some leg lifts or doing just like some pumping of their legs or getting onto their stomach and doing a Superman or a bird dog. Um, and then before they stand up, doing the squeeze all of their leg muscles together, doing the whatever technique where you cross your legs and stand up, just something where they're helping to facilitate keeping that blood up higher since their system isn't regulating that as well and the blood stays cooling in the legs. It's all of that first thing in the morning. And I will tell I will tell you that what I hear from patients is that they feel like they have more energy in the morning when they do those exercises before they get out of bed. I don't have to and I don't think it has to be very long, three to five minutes, just something to get the body moving. Mm. You know what I'm realizing, because we're such good friends, we sort of skipped the uh, introductory portion of this. So I want to come back 
<laughs> it's like we're hanging out in between our treatment rooms. Um, so I wanna, I wanna, wanna jump back to we talked about what dysautonomia is. Um, dysautonomia is an umbrella term, and then I want to really dive into what the teaser alert. I want to really dive into what Christina was just talking about. But y'all might be listening, like I don't know if I have this or not because I don't know what it is. So we talked about dysautonomia being a deregulation of our autonomic nervous system. Dysautonomia is really an umbrella term. So what exactly does that mean? And what are some top diagnoses we might see? Like what's this OH, OI, POTS? Like what, what even is all of that? So um, yeah, so dysautonomia is a term that can be this whole host of constellation of symptoms of all the things that we've discussed. So lightheadedness, dizziness, um, difficulty with digestion, difficulty with heart rate regulation or blood pressure, excess fatigue, lightheadedness. I said that. Um, and some things that we see in particular, so we generally aren't, we're, we're almost the ones to discover it, don't you think, when they're coming in post-concussion. We're like, okay, so we're already treating your neck. We're working on your vision and vestibular system. And we're just having these symptoms that just feel like they're outside of those buckets. And so also we've changed how we do uh, our testing and have everybody essentially do a Buffalo test. And that's where we really see this in general dysautonomia, and then we treat that. But within that subtype, now we're starting to figure out these people that are having, wait, I'm having you before you do get on the treadmill and walk, I have you sit, check your, how hard you feel like you're working and what your heart rate is. Hint for me, I don't know if you see this too. So before I have them on the treadmill, I have them sitting there and I ask them how hard they're working on that six to 20 point scale. And if they start telling me, oh, I'm working it at 11, I'm like, oh, just sitting here, not doing anything. Hmm, that's a, that's that's strange. Okay, and I just note it. And then they stand up and they walk from my room over to the treadmill, and their heart rate's well over 100. And when they had been sitting, it was you know maybe in the 80s. And I'm like, hmm, this feels a little bit different than just regular dysautonomia. Let's see how they do on the treadmill. Um, and that's how we're starting to see more of this pot specific type of dysautonomia. Um, and then there are some people who don't quite fit that criteria. So that's the OH where they have that. Oh, OI, orthostatic intolerance. Um, and did I answer the rest of your question? So, dysautonomia, <laughs> orthostatic intolerance, uh, orthostatic hypotension, and then neurally mediated hypotension, which has another name as well. So, those are sort of the types that we're seeing in our clinic. But, you know, there's like 50 different diagnoses under that umbrella of dysautonomia. Yeah. So that's, that's really important. I just want to touch on that again. So the three main diagnosable conditions under dysautonomia that where you don't have to have, you know, your sweat glands assessed with little capsules in your skin and things like that. You've got OH, which is orthostatic hypotension. So that means that when you're, so the main test for POTS and dysautonomia to determine your subtype is called a supine to stand test. And, and typically it's done on a tilt table or you can use what's called the Nassau lean protocol, um, which is about as sensitive as a tilt table, but a tilt table is still considered the gold standard. And so in orthostatic hypotension, what happens is the patient goes from lying quietly for 10 minutes to standing and they have a drop in their blood pressure. So they don't get that reflexive um, stability that they should get from their autonomic nervous system and their dizziness or lightheadedness upon standing is because they actually get an abnormal drop in their blood pressure. So they don't get enough pressure through their system and their blood doesn't go to their brain properly. POTS, which is the focus of this particular um, podcast, and we're going to get into a lot more because there's a, there's a lot of nuances about POTS, is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And that means that when you go from lying down to standing up, 
that same one third of your blood volume goes down into your legs, but you don't have that reflexive squeeze. So you don't um, bring that blood volume back up into your trunk and into your brain. And so your, your nervous system says, well, that's weird. What do I do here? And so you go, what's called tachycardia. So you get this elevated heart rate. And so for POTS, they have to have an elevation in your heart rate of over 30 beats per minute in the absence of a drop in your blood pressure. So again, POTS, you have to have an increase that's sustained over the 10 minutes of your heart rate that's over 30 beats per minute, and you cannot have a drop in your blood pressure. If you have an elevated heart rate and a drop in your blood pressure, you're orthostatic hypotension. Orthostatic intolerance means you have all of the symptoms of, of intoler of not tolerating standing, right? So you're standing there, you're standing for the prolonged 10 minutes, and you're lightheaded. You might feel like your vision is going gray. You might feel kind of sweaty and clammy, but there's no physiological change to your heart rate or your blood pressure. So you don't tolerate standing, but you don't have POTS or orthostatic hypotension. So that's the main difference between the three big pieces of that umbrella. Would you agree with that sort of quick synopsis of the three? Yes, I would, I would agree with that. I would say you might see slight variations in blood pressure, but it, what was the, there's in there like some criteria has to be less than like 10 millimeters of mercury change between the two. It has to be, so for it to be POTS, you cannot have a drop in your systolic blood pressure, the top number. So normally you would hear like 120 over 80, right? So that top number can't drop more than 20 millimeters of mercury. So you can't go below 100. And then your diastolic can't drop more than 10. So if you have a POTS diagnosis, you're on your tilt table test at your doctor's office, and you're in that prolonged standing position, and it triggers symptoms, and your heart rate goes up more than 30 beats per minute or more than 40 beats per minute if you're under 19 years old, and your blood pressure doesn't change significantly, that's POTS. And it's really important that people understand that there is a clear diagnostic criteria for these, because although the treatments are very similar, we're looking for different types of overlay. So POTS has a lot more autoimmune disorder overlay with it. Orthostatic hypotension is a more severe medical diagnosis. So one is more severe medically, one is more important because there's a lot more overlay with autoimmune disorders and there's more widespread organ involvement with POTS. And so it is important for people to get the right diagnosis, even though ultimately the treatment is very similar for all autonomic dysfunction. Um, so digging deeper into POTS. So we talked a little bit about how the average person gets diagnosed, um, but we also want to talk about the fact that it's sort of an iceberg. I have celiac disease, so it's really easy for me to think about it this way, but celiac disease is also an iceberg diagnosis. So there's a small amount of people that you can see above the water that are clinical, and then there's a whole host of people that are subclinical that are under the water, right? The Titanic runs into the part that's under the water, okay? So um, in POTS, it's very similar. These people typically have these underlying autoimmune disorders. They were okay. Maybe they had some POTSy-type symptoms early on. Maybe they were never a great runner. Maybe they were always a little bit on the tired side. And then they have a triggering event, and that's what makes them clinical or the piece of the iceberg that's up above. And so it's important to understand some of these underlying conditions. So leading into that, what would be some major underlying diagnoses that people would also have? So I have POTS. I probably also have some of these other things. What, are, yes. what is the research saying? So um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is something that... I mean, you can, I think the likelihood of developing POTS with just that alone is like 30%, but that in combination with, so having had a concussion as a precipitating event, 
have, in, I think like 11% of the population per Miranda, the article we read recently, it was like 11.4% of people defunct who had, who had been diagnosed with POTS felt that it was after their concussion that that's when their POTS symptoms began. Um, so Ehlers-Danlos, which is that connective tissue, so people who um, are really flexible or can dislocate their joints easily, who are double jointed in their elbows or their knees or put their hands flat on the floor, those are people that even if they don't have Ehlers-Danlos, you're just thinking, okay, we have a connective tissue dysfunction. We have more laxity maybe in that venous system, so maybe it's going to be more predisposed to having that distension in the veins of the legs. Um, so other autoimmune diseases, like you had already mentioned that you have, which is celiac or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, or gosh, there's some other, like, Shorgans. <laughs> Lupus. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a bunch where people. Type 1 diabetes. Yeah. All those autoimmune type things sort of predispose you almost like this is its own autoimmune response. That's so interesting. So kind of, and, and it can happen in people who don't have that sort of history as well, right? So like concussion can also be a triggering event. So don't think if you're listening to this podcast, well, I don't have celiac disease. So even though these symptoms all sound like me, I can't possibly have POTS. Well, first of all, there's 49 other diagnoses under dysautonomia. So don't worry, there's still help for you. But also <laughs> you don't have to have you know, celiac disease in order to get POTS, because like you said, 11.4% of people felt their concussion was actually their precipitating event. And now we're going to hear a lot more about POTS because they're realizing that some of these long haulers from COVID are actually falling into this dysautonomia spectrum and possibly a true POTS presentation. So I think right. that a disease that was very misunderstood and, mis and, and wrongly labeled for a very long time is probably going to rapidly come to the forefront in the next year or two because of COVID. So that could be maybe a quote-unquote positive thing out of COVID is the awareness. <laughs> I mean, nobody wants someone to have a lifelong condition, right? But um, if, it, if it promotes some awareness and these people aren't just wandering around the earth on their own wasting their medical dollars, that would be in a nice silver lining, I would think, overall. To that note, Epstein-Barr virus is also uh, a risk factor for developing POTS. Yeah, great point. And that lives in your system forever. So that can also be triggered by different events and things like that. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah, great point. Okay, so we talked a little bit about um, the, the tilt table test, right? The problem with the tilt table test is that's the gold standard, but the national average weight is between six and nine months. So now you've listened to this podcast in, in the order that we've done things, which is a little confusing, so I apologize. Uh, but you, you've listened to this podcast, and you're like, wow, these symptoms are screaming me. I too can't stand still and do my hair in the morning without feeling lightheaded. Um, I had to put a chair in my bathroom so that I could curl my hair in the morning. Or you're like, man, me too. When I get to the top of a flight of stairs, I feel like my heart is beating out of my chest. Or when I get stressed out, I get this really weird smelling sweat now. Or I can't go in hot tubs anymore, but I used to be able to. I can't take hot showers. I get lightheaded when I get out of the shower. So you've got these weird symptoms. You're like, man, I think that's me. Um, how do I get tested? How do I, how do I figure out what's going on? And so the problem is now you've figured out what you need. You've learned how to advocate for yourself. And then you go to call the local autonomic clinic <laughs> and it's a six to nine month wait. So what we've been finding is there's some other tests that make it a little more accessible. So if we were to talk about what's called the NASA lean protocol, how does that differ from a typical laying down supine to stand test? And why is that critical piece so important? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So we didn't know about the NASA protocol until very recently. So all we had was the supine to stand test. And that was, and their tests are essentially the same. There is one key defining difference. And so let's talk about what it is in general. Essentially, you have somebody lie down for 10 minutes, you monitor their blood pressure. And depending on which article you read, there's different intervals. Some, the, I think NASA actually says to do it every single minute. I think doing it every two or three minutes. So getting like four intervals of blood pressure and measuring their heart rate consistently though throughout the whole time. And I like to look at oxygen saturation. So you do that for 10 minutes, then you have them stand up and you have, and you do the same thing for 10 minutes, monitor their vitals. Now the NASA protocol, the difference is, is that you have them stand six or so inches away from the wall so that the only part of their body that's touching the wall is where their shoulder blades are. And the idea is you cue them to try and keep the muscles of their legs as calm as they can. And here's the tricky thing, and you've probably seen this when you've been doing this test as well, is that they don't feel good in that position. They go into those default protective mechanisms. So they want to start weight shifting. They want to start wiggling around. They want to start doing things to help get that blood volume back up to their brain. And you have to cue them like, as much as you can tolerate this, let's try and see if we can keep you relaxed. You start to see pretty quickly though, that change in position that, you, you know, you'll see the 30 beat change. And, and then I feel like you're just torturing them for the remaining 10 minutes. Um, like you, when you did your test, you just stopped because you're like, I know I'm going to feel horrible for the rest of the day from being. Yeah. I made it, I made it three minutes at a 35 beat per minute increase. And then I said, yeah, I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah, Y'all got, got your information. I'm out of here. <laughs> and since we as PTs don't officially diagnose, I feel like, you know, how much do we need to torture them before we go? Okay. This seems really likely. Let's get you to somebody who can give you the official diagnosis. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a very important piece. Okay. So two things there, we talked about the fact that you have to lean against the wall to decrease your lower extremity, your leg muscle input, right? Relaxing the legs doesn't allow you to pump that blood volume back up to your core. And then we also talked about the fact that we use this as a screening tool to determine who needs to go on to a physician. So the physician is who diagnoses this pathology, right? A physician is who determines that you have POTS. What we do is a modified version to decide who needs to go to the doctor. Um, so I just want to make sure that people understand that because these people are medically complicated and you really want to have a cardiologist involved. Some of these patients need an endocrinologist or a GI specialist. So making sure that people aren't just going rogue and totally managing these on their own, but bringing in a team and you might not have access to somebody right away, which is um, what has happened to a lot of people that I've spoken to our colleagues. And so finding a physician who's interested in the topic, willing to take the time, willing to learn the protocol, which is not very difficult. They lay down and then they stand up and you take their blood pressure. I feel confident that anyone who went to medical school could complete this test and then understand some basic knowledge. And then we do most of the education and we do all of the exercise. So it's a team-based approach and it has to be involved in interdisciplinary way, or you could miss key pieces um, that these people could have going on. Okay. So that is awesome. Um, we have a way to test for it. What happens uh, once you test positive for POTS, so you've been searching through the medical system, you finally have a diagnosis, we don't want you to doctor Google because I, people email me like, I read that the life expectancy is five years. No, that's absolutely not true. Is this a permanent condition? Is it a long-term manageable condition? What, or do we just not know? Like, what's the deal long-term once you get your diagnosis? So, um, <laughs> If you are 
under the age of 19 and have a diagnosis of POTS, you have a greater likelihood of it just sort of going away by the time you reach adulthood. Having said that, in general though, I would not say that this is, so this is something you could go into remission where you don't necessarily have symptoms for, but I, I don't want to say necessarily it's curative. Would you agree with that as well? My answer is we don't know. <laughs> which is okay to say, right? It, what's, what's important to say is we don't know because the research is coming from this world of POTS where people have been medically compromised for a decade or five years. And so are those people more likely to have long-term complications because their organs have been stressed for so long? Or if we start doing a really great job in the head injury world of picking up on this early, will that change their long-term outcome? And we don't know. We don't know the answer to anything, right? We just really, we don't know if post-COVID POTS or post-concussion POTS is different than Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome POTS or autoimmune POTS, right? We just really don't have any idea. And so my latest thing I've been telling people afterwards is we know that it's treatable. We know that there's a name for it. We know what you should do long-term just in case. And then that, that then that's sort of it, right? And and some people think that's okay, right? If you have migraines, you have migraines. You're not going to die because you have migraines. You're going to take a medication or you're going to go for a massage or you're going to do management techniques. And the way that I like to think about my POTS is not as a death sentence, but I like to think about it as access to being able to get healthy for the first time in a decade and just knowing that my system is going to work a little different than Christina's system. So what I've been telling patients lately is, you're now better, right? So they get better. And we're going to talk about the treatment in just a second, but they get better. And then the last visit, they're like, but what's going to happen in the future? And I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know the answer to that. But what I tell them is long-term, let's say you tear your ACL or you break your foot, something happens, right? You're a person on the planet. Something's going to happen to you. So you just know that if you miss a week or more of cardio, you're in trouble. Or you know that if you miss more than three days in a row of your cardio, you could be you could be in trouble long-term. So what I want you to do is, let's say you break your ankle and you're bed-bound, I want you to make sure that you get in a pool and you swim. I want you to make sure that you get on an arm bike and you do your cardio with your arm bike. You just have to do a little extra self-care than the average person to sustain the progress that you've made. And if you have a relapse, life isn't over, you just go, okay, I know what the name of this is. I know what the treatment protocol for this is. I'm going to get back on the horse and I'm going to start over again and I'm going to get back healthy. And it should happen faster each time you go through that relapse. So I try not to, I try to tell them I don't know the answer, but even though I don't know the answer, these are all the things you can do long-term to preserve your health. You have diabetes, there's treatment for it. You're always going to have diabetes for the rest of your life, right? But you're not going to live a horrible life for the rest of your life. You're going to check your insulin, you're going to take your medication, and you're going to move on. And that's sort of the same idea, I think, for this POTS. And then maybe in the long run, we'll get lucky and we'll find out, well, once it's gone, it's completely gone. And if we don't find that out, then our instructions would have been right. Watch it forever, but don't worry about it. You could slip and fall getting out of the bathtub. Don't worry about getting another concussion. Enjoy your life, that kind of thing, right? So same, same sort of instructions we've been giving you guys long-term for your head injuries in general. It's more important to be active and healthy than it is to sit around and worry about your pots coming back someday. And I tell a patient something similar to that. And I just think, you know, our prescription, our medication for them is exercise. And you think there's nothing but positive side effects for exercise. So it's like, hey, if for the rest of your life, you just have to make sure you find a way to stay active, like, 
there could be worse things to be told. <laughs> it's not even you, a medication. You don't have to take a pill. Yeah, exactly. You just gotta like keep moving. Yeah. It's great. It's wonderful. And it's a good motivator for someone like me who tends to be a little on the lazy side. Uh, I didn't walk the last two days. I got to at least walk on the third day. I got to, I got I can't go three days in a row. <laughs> but challenge, I would challenge that because 10 years ago you were training and running a marathon. But now you've had something for the last 10 years yeah. that has shifted even how you think about it. Yeah. So had you known 10 years ago, maybe you wouldn't feel that way about yourself, right? It's a great point. That's a great point. Although I've always been on the lazy side of it. <laughs> I've, I've always been that way. <laughs> um, okay. So we talked about the symptoms. Um, we talked about my story a little bit, not a ton, but a little bit. Um, what's exciting about this diagnosis is that drugs are the second line of defense, right? So I think that's so exciting. It's not a pill. Although in American culture, that is the ideal treatment is, is popping a pill, but that is not the first line of defense for POTS. Um, so what would be the first line of defense? And then we can get back into meds a little bit later. Yeah. So I like to tell all my patients to start with compression. So something as simple as putting on compression socks helps to reduce the workload of the heart. So it keeps the, the blood up. Um, towards the brain, so you feel a lot better. Uh, depending on which research article you read, um, one says that really you should wear compression from the legs all the way up to the low abdomen. One even said all the way up to the xiphoid process. And I think that's just, I mean, I think we need to be realistic. I don't know who is actually gonna be able to tolerate doing that all the time, especially come summertime. So for me, I feel like our patients are gonna be more compliant if we just say, let's just get you some good compression socks and let's get you to where you can tolerate wearing them all day, every day. You don't need to wear them at night, but you need to wear them when you're upright and doing activities. Uh, then increasing water intake, as well as increasing uh, electrolytes and sodium. So there are different supplements, little like tablets and other powders that you can mix into your water and drink those every day. And I know you have personal experience with this, but our patients typically say they feel a heck of a lot better just by increasing sodium and electrolytes. Again, we don't prescribe sodium. We can just recommend these things. Your physician would give you an exact dosage of um, sodium. But then you can also just increase your sodium intake in foods, which feels like a very strange recommendation to be like, <laughs> eat more canned soup and eat more ramen noodles or V8, but those are all really good high sodium type foods. Um, so wait, just so to interrupt you for a second. When we talk about electrolytes, the, the amount of sodium these people are allowed to have, these people, myself included, is staggering. It's, yes. So a, a physician can recommend between 3 and 15 grams of sodium per day. That would be eating two cups of ramen noodles, which are 1,200 apiece every single day, and then some, and then still adding sodium to your food. So it's a lot of sodium. Again, that's why a physician has to recommend it, because that can cause a whole host of health problems. So we recommend, like I love, I don't get anything for recommending them. I love Drip Drop, it's my favorite one. There are some noon tablets that I really like, but it's effervescent, N-U-U-N. Um, they, they have a little bit of bubbles in them, so sometimes I don't enjoy that. Um, and then there's also Liquid IV, which has the most sodium per package, and you just dump them in water. Um, but to me, I feel like Liquid IV feels like drinking salt water. 
Yeah, so there's liquid IV, um, and I feel like that sort of, that tastes a little too salty for me, um, even though it has the most electrolytes in it, so it's probably the best one to take. Um, and you can also dilute it more. So some patients will say, like myself included, that it's um, a little too salty, and so I put it in like 18 to 24 ounces of water and just drink it all day. Um, but it, technically on the label, it says to put it in about 8 to 12 ounces of water. So any of those things uh, would be perfectly acceptable. And then when you go to your physician, they might recommend salt tablets, um, or some people don't tolerate salt tablets really well, so that's where you could do your V8 juice or your ramen noodles or chicken bouillon cubes or things like that to get that heavy sodium content. And I just want to add to that, you know, I don't think we should get into the subtypes of POTS, but if you have the, I believe it's the hyperadrenergic type of POTS, that this would not be a recommendation for that. So take all of these with a grain of salt um, forgive the pun, but, um, yeah, that's why it's good to make sure that you're working with a physician. <laughs> Hyperadrenergic POTS is the one that amitriptyline and nortriptyline are contraindicated for. Ooh, so that was the one that we figured out the, the hard way, uh, because nortriptyline and amitriptyline are the number one medication used for migraines and sleep or headaches and sleep post concussion. And it turns out because of the anticholinergic effects, if you have the subtype of POTS, it'll actually make your symptoms worse. And we know that because that happened to me and it was a downward spiral very fast. And so <laughs> I had to do a deep, dark dive into the uh, Google world and found an article by the NIH that said in one little sentence, <laughs> these types of drugs could be contraindicated. Um, so we had to have a, a big meeting and talk about that. So so just be aware because if you, if you do end up being diagnosed with POTS, Talk to your physician because you may, if you have a head injury, also be on some of these other medications and they can be contraindicated. Okay, so we talked about, so we, we falsely increase your stroke volume by increasing your volume, right? So we, we add two to three liters of water. We falsely supplement for your skeletal system by putting on compression. In a perfect world, you would wear gradient compression from your feet to your abdomen but people are people and that's really hard. So we at least try to play, let's make a deal and get people to wear socks. Um, and then exercise, that is the treatment. I mean, the, the compression and the electrolytes in the water make them feel better in about a week or two. They'll come in and say, hey, I'm already feeling a little more stable. And that gives us time for the exercise to start to work. So let's dive into the meat and potatoes of treatment for POTS. What is the exercise protocol? How does a person who every time they exercise feel like garbage, get started exercising. You're going to tell me, okay, exercise is the treatment. And I'm going to tell you, I haven't exercised in 10 years because it makes me feel like garbage for an hour afterwards. So no yes. way, Jose. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I want to talk about, I absolutely want to answer that, but can I also just say it's also really good under um, strategies. So compression electrolytes, also elevating the head of your bed and sitting in an anti-gravity chair, try and improve the orthostatic tolerance, cooling vests, um, the, like Disneyland misters with a fan on them, all of those things to help regulate the nervous system. Okay, so exercise. Um, yeah, so here's where this is an art and a science because it depends on who you have walking in your door. You have a new diagnosis of POTS on a person who is still a fairly high level athlete is a very different exercise prescription than the person who maybe it took 10 years to get a diagnosis. <laughs> <Who's that>? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, so let's talk about that person more on the end of who took five to seven years to get a diagnosis and are coming in the door who are super deconditioned. And they tell me, 
I have to walk a long distance to get into my job. And by the time I get into work, I am exhausted. Or the person who says, it takes everything I have to complete my normal activities of daily living. I can't go to school. I can't work like that. Let's talk about where do we start with that person? If that's okay with you. Um, so horizontally based exercises. Okay. So we can start super, super, super low on that. And that is lie on your back and put your legs in the air and do an air bike or pretend like you're cleaning the wall with your feet and slide your feet up and down and work on trying to get a volume of 20 minutes. And maybe we start out at five minutes a day or five minutes a couple times a day and work our way up. I found that I can get people even in that position, very deconditioned, can work up to 20 minutes pretty quickly. Other than the fact that it's mind-numbingly boring, but that's where we need to start. And then the goal is then we start to transition them to more upright horizontal exercises. So including the recumbent bike or the rower, or like in our clinic, we have a shuttle board, which is like a leg press machine, Pilates style, where you can really adjust or the um, total gym. What's his name that used to advertise for that? Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris. How could I forget that? <laughs> but body weight resisted leg press. So you're not doing it for the strengthening, but you're doing it to get the heart rate up to that appropriate low target heart rate. Maybe I we should tell you. Oh. That's a hard sell, right? So I'm going to put my patient hat on um, because when when I first started down my journey of my diagnosis, Christina says to me, Lauren, you just need to get tested for POTS because I was hearing all these patients' complaints. I was living this experience, but I was still in the land of delusion of I can't have everything wrong with me that my patients have. Like, I don't have that. That is not me. That's not my problem, right? I'd had two stress echoes 10 years apart cardiologists at some of the biggest hospitals in the world told me they ain't nothing wrong with you. Um, well, turns out they were wrong, but that's okay. So <laughs> Christina sees me and she says, you need to just start on a recumbent bike for five minutes a day. And I was like, absolutely not. I want to just go back to running a marathon. I am not going to ride a recumbent bike for five minutes. That is insane. That is not exercise. And Christina had to tell me that I wasn't more special than our patients. Um, <laughs> and it was really, it was really hard for me, my mind wise and emotionally to get my mind wrapped around the fact that that was exercise. And I will hear this time and again from patients too. Like, you, you only letting me exercise at 80 to 90 beats per minute. Like you're not letting me do anything. And so I now, because I'm snarky and nasty, will say, well, you weren't doing anything when you came in. Like I'm not restricting you. I'm asking you to do something, right? But we just look at it so interestingly as humans of what we diagnose as exercise. Um, but it's really important to understand that if you don't start at the beginning, and you don't lay the right foundation for your nervous system, you're never going to get to the walking exercises. So the, the laying down it, in the beginning, it was a really hard sell for me to try to convince patients that laying down and pedaling their feet in the air was exercise. I felt so disingenuous telling someone to do that, but it is remarkable how much of a workload you can do as soon as you lay down. As soon as these people lay down, the heart rate goes from 110 to 80 and all of a sudden they can sweat. All of a sudden, their legs can be tired, not because they're not getting blood flow, but because they're working. Um, and so it's really important if you're listening to this that if your therapist or your doctor tells you you have to start with laying down and pedaling your feet in the air, that is where you have to start. But you will be able to get to the point where you can do the activities that you want to do. So that buy-in is so important or you won't lay the foundation that you need. The other thing that I like to do early on also, which makes them feel like they're doing a little bit more exercise is I like to get them into the pool. And we're fortunate enough at our clinic that we have this great warm 
comfy therapeutic pool and we can have them doing essentially the same thing. Um, very simple, they could kick their legs, we could have them walking, we could have them doing squatting, lunging, all of those types of exercises. And because they're in water, they're getting that graded compression, they're already having the benefits of the hydrostatic nature of water and they're getting that blunted heart rate response and they're upright. So then they feel really good. They actually tend to feel like they have more energy when they get out of the water. So I try to give them a combination of let's do a couple of things to just keep it maybe a little bit more interesting until that we can get them more to like the recumbent bike rower stage. And then ultimately we get them up to walking and then from walking to more, you know, higher level activities. And in the meantime, in addition to the cardio, we also want to think of how else can we help this body, this system respond better to exertion. And so we would absolutely add in strengthening for the legs, strengthening for the core. I mean, really the whole body, but those, those lower areas, because then the muscular skill system is helping to support how the body responds. Yeah. And then exercise, of course, you know, I've, I've also talked to patients about this, your heart is a muscle, right? So the more that you pump that muscle and the more that you exercise, the stronger that muscle is going to become. And you have what's called your cardiac output and your stroke volume. So every time that little muscle squeezes, blood should shoot out, right? And it should go to all of your body parts and to your brain and things like that. And so just by physically exercising, lying down, you're actually starting to increase your stroke volume. You're increasing your cardiac output and you're increasing what's called your autonomic tone. So you're improving that skeletal pump and that will ultimately be what gets you to be able to tolerate standing exercise. And standing exercise is the goal for most people. And so if you start to lay that groundwork laying down, you'll be able to tolerate the upright position. Okay, so we are so we start horizontally and then our goal is to get up into all of our normal activities. What would be like a typical pace? Like how fast is this process? That's a great question. So that's where, it's, that's, where it's, that's where it's an art and a science. I'd like to say it's really fast, but it depends on the person. Some people will have these, in my opinion, like miraculous improvements and they feel like it's at a snail pace. But, you know, I would say plan on a good portion of a year, you know, and we're not necessarily seeing them that long, but um, it's definitely months. Yeah. A couple, the, the average, so once a patient can sustain their heart rate, it's relatively stable, meaning they're, they're not working at the same load with the heart rate going all over the place, right? They can do that for 20 minutes. They don't have symptoms. That is the goal. Then you would increase by about 10 beats per minute. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. So for some people, that's one, they're, they're changing their heart rate every two to three weeks. For some people, that's every month they're changing their heart rate. It seems yeah. to be slower in the beginning. I don't know if you would agree with that, but it seems to be slower in the beginning. And then they get in that upright exercise. They're really tolerating things well. They're getting into interval training. And then they go, go off on their own. You don't need me to monitor you every two, three weeks for you to do interval training and sustain and to, and to sustain your progress. So a, a lot of monitoring in the beginning and then it sort of fades out and you just become a person that is living on the planet without any medical supervision and you're just exercising as your prescription for the rest of your life kind of thing. So, exactly. so know that it's, it feels really slow in the beginning, um, but the sooner you get started, the sooner you buckle down and you do the right things, the faster you're gonna be feeling a lot better. And that's what's really important is that your organs start to work the right way and that you can function and go to work and go to dinner and do all the things that you wanna do. Yes. Um, okay, so let's say someone is really struggling. Let's say we're doing all the protocol 
and their system has just been tanked for so long that they need a little assistance. So there's a couple main drug classes that your doctor might prescribe that you might hear about. Um, and some of this post-COVID POTS research that's coming out is really interesting to me because they're not even first-line drugs that you would use. One of them is like a fourth or fifth-line drug that you would actually use, but whatever. I love that the researchers are doing some research, so that's great. Um, but one of the big ones you'll hear about is beta blockers, so yeah. propranolol. So what's the deal? Because propranolol also makes people feel lightheaded. So like, what's the deal with this propranolol option? What, what does the research say there? You know what, I honestly, that's, you might actually be able to speak to that more because we have people that are on it and then people that are asked to get off of it, but it blunts your heart rate response. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what, what are you, what are you finding? Well, um, I'm finding that I'm pushing for people to not take drugs at all. Um, <laughs> but uh, with, with the study that they did, so there was a study um, that they talked about at the Dysautonomy International Conference where they did tilt table testing. So that, that testing that we talked about in the beginning, a while ago now, um, and they tried different medications. And so for propranolol, a typical prescription might be 80 milligrams. I think that's like an average amount that people would take when they're taking it for a cardiac reason. And so the researchers looked at different dosages to figure out like what's that tipping point where it actually helps versus it can actually increase your lightheaded symptoms. And they found that this sort of, we can call it an off-label use because it's a really low dose, 10 to 20 milligrams was actually the key amount. So if you go to a doc who wants to put you on propranolol, be an informed consumer and know that the research actually shows that a very low dose is what's best for you. And there is a critical tipping point where your symptoms will actually increase on propranolol because of those blood pressure changes and, and it being a beta blocker. Um, the other big one is fludrocortisone, which is a nasal spray. So you can find that in like antihistamine nasal spray. Um, and I, I had a patient not that long ago who told me that they thought I was wrong about their diagnosis because um, they, they only have symptoms uh, when they don't have allergies. And when they take their allergy medication, they don't have symptoms. And I was like, well, what's your allergy medication? And it was Flonase, which is fludrocortisone. So they were essentially not having symptoms because when they took their fludrocortisone, they they were having a volume expander and so they were symptom free and then when they didn't have their allergies and they weren't taking their nasal spray they had all these symptoms so i had to be wrong of course but it turns out i was not wrong um, they were just self-medicating for part of the year and then not self-medicating for the rest of the year so there's a couple big drugs um, that nasal spray the propranolol there's another one called uh pyrom pyromidadrine or something like that it's like 17 letters long um, but the problem with that one is it can increase diarrhea and some of these gi complaints so you want to be careful there. And then um, Midodrin is another big one that you guys will hear about. So just kind of knowing there are meds out there, but they are not the first line. They're for the people who really aren't tolerating the treatment very well or who are wildly non-compliant with their treatment, which we would never recommend. We would always recommend compliance. Um, remember that if you miss three days in a row of your cardio, you may have to take a step backwards. So it's really important that you are compliant most days of the week. You can't exercise Thursday through Sunday because that's your lightest schedule and then miss the rest of the week because you're actually prohibiting yourself from making progress. And if you miss more than a week in a row, so if you miss more than seven days of cardio, you may have to start over again at the previous phase of your recovery. So really making sure that you don't let that profound fatigue that you might be experiencing keep you from getting better. And um, POTS actually has the same level of disability as congestive heart failure and COPD. So we have to treat these people with love and kindness and understand that their life is just hard and that this profound fatigue really does keep them from being able to do a lot of things. But also we have to have our tough gloves where we tell them, I hear you, I see you, I understand you, 
but get on your back and pedal your feet in the air and do it at least three or four times a week and don't miss more than three days in a row because you're never going to get better if you don't. So it's that delicate balance of tough love and understanding when they're non-compliant. Um, what are some final takeaways? What are some positive outlook things that you've noticed from working with POTS as we summarize this whole thing up? That people are getting better and they are feeling better and they get their quality of life back. So from a low level patient who couldn't even shower standing up to completing all of her activities of daily living and getting ready to go back to school to somebody who can now walk their dog for over a half an hour without feeling heaviness in their legs um, or having to go and take a nap for two hours and being able to complete normal daily life and just sort of put all those symptoms that were preventing them to live the life they wanted to in the back seat. So, I, I mean, I, if people can get this diagnosis and figure out that this is what they have, I'm very optimistic that people can feel a lot better just by going through this process of getting their exercise tolerance back up. Absolutely. I mean, I could work, right? So also, if you're listening to this, understand that you don't have to be so disabled that you can't walk to your kitchen to have dinner with your family, right? I mean, I, I've had this for 11 years and haven't felt good for 11 years, but I was able to work full-time 50, 60 hour weeks, right? I just couldn't do anything else. I, I didn't have any bandwidth left to, you know, if I traveled, I would be sick for two days afterwards and I would get a cold or whatever it is because my immune system wasn't working right. Or I couldn't go out to dinner on a Tuesday night after work because I just didn't have anything left to give after being at the office all day. And then you start, so, so you can be different levels of disability and still have this diagnosis and still be profoundly affected in your life. It just might look different for different people. But if you buckle down and you do the treatment and you do the things that your system needs, now I don't have to spend an entire Saturday on the couch to make up for that week of work, right? I can have an activity every day and then maybe every couple weeks now I have to take a full, like this, like today my plan is to recover from the last three weeks of an insane schedule, right? So that I can be ready to go and not have a mental breakdown at Christina on Monday morning. But, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's stretching out how much I have to do for self-care. I'm starting to feel a, little, a lot more like a normal quote unquote, normal person. And so really understanding that it's a treatable condition. If you just can get your diagnosis, you can just get into the right people. There are systematic approaches to make this thing better. And you ultimately are empowered because it's your decision. If Christina can't force me to do my cardio every day. Nobody can make me do it except for me. And I really like that. I like being in control of my situation and then just needing a heavy hand every once in a while and being told to get over myself and do what I need to do. Um, and I think that that's so empowering and wonderful. It's not a death sentence. There's not a shorter lifetime expectancy for these people. They just have been struggling in their daily activities and now there's an answer. And if you just address the problem, life opens back up to you. And I think that that's just wonderful. So if anybody has anything else to say, otherwise these poor people have been listening to us for way too long. And so it is time to wrap this thing up. Christina, I am eternally grateful for you as a person, but also that you joined me today to talk about POTS, which is so fascinating. In the last 18 months, it has completely changed the way I look at my patients, the way I look at myself, my practice. You still want to treat the whole person, right? So if you're here for a concussion, you also need your vision therapy and your vestibular therapy and your neck assessed. You need all of your pieces of you as a person treated. And then there may be this underlying piece that has just been that missing piece to get you back to normal. Um, you can find me at LZ Concussion on Twitter. Mostly I just retweet the things that Nick tweets, but I am physically present. Um, <laughs> you can find us at phoenixconcussionrecovery.com. Of course, Nick's uh, 
URL is concussiontalk.com. And we're here for you. And we will try to be a more regular presence if I can get it together. But I can't always. I have pots. So, you know, I don't always have the energy for everything. Um, <laughs> so thanks so much for listening in. And we really appreciate you. Thank you both very much. Concussion Talk Podcast is presented by HeadCheck Health. HeadCheck Health bridges the gaps in concussion care through simple, powerful technology. To run organizations like the Canadian Football League, Track Factory Racing, the Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University, and Volleyball Canada, who rely on HeadCheck Health to improve communication and optimize care. Visit HeadCheckHealth.com for more. Music at the beginning of this podcast is by Ben Sound, www.bensound.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.